Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 157, and as promised, we're going to take a look at, among other things, the anatomy of hope in Romans, as well as Hebrews. We've come to Hebrews through Romans, which will give our ongoing so-called commentary on Hebrews, or treatment of Hebrews, a, a different kind of character than you mostly read about. So... We'll take a few moments to prepare. Father, we thank you for the promise that the spirit of truth whom you have sent and whom our Lord Jesus Christ has sent to us indwells us forever and that he leads us into all truth. You haven't left us alone in this world without a knowledge of reality. A real, the reality that is Jesus, your son, without a knowledge of truth, which is the word of truth, the scriptures. We pray that you'll grant us insight into them now in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope in Romans and Hebrews. We've come to Hebrews via Romans. The epistle of Paul to the saints in Rome contains its own anatomy of hope. I'm happy to have done the work of doing a translation of Romans. I'm not entirely happy with it, but it's an expanded translation that we gutted out over the course of many months. And I'm going to use the fruit of that today in dealing with a vast portion, really, of Romans that has to do with hope. And I hope you'll see hope pop in the Roman scriptures, the scriptures in Rome, uh, the, the Roman epistle. Now, again, the epistle of Paul to the saints in Rome contains its own anatomy of hope. It's well worth a look in connection with Hebrews 20.20, 20, and I hope you'll see that connection, and you probably will, over the course of the next few messages or increments. Of special note is the subject of hope with regard to Abraham, and I think you'll see a correlation, and one that you almost have to entertain between Romans 4:16 to 25 and Hebrews 6:13 to 15 really along with Hebrews 11:8 to 19 but especially Hebrews 11:17 to 19 and you're all nodding and saying of course of course so of special note is the subject of hope with regard to Abraham what I like to call the Abraham files because he's about to emerge in a big way in Hebrews 6:12 to 15 only to be outshined by our Lord Jesus Christ of course the key to the interpretation of Hebrews 6:12 is not only found in the context of Hebrews 6:13 to 15 and chapter 11 in toto where many exemplars shine only to be outshined by Jesus in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. But the key to the interpretation, again, of Hebrews 6, 12, where we're going next in our exegesis, is not only found in the context of Hebrews itself, Hebrews 6, 13 to 15, and chapter 11, especially verses 11 to 8, 8 to 19, 11, 8 to 19, all of which deal with Abraham and his faith, but also in Romans 4. Romans 4, being in, in faith, deals with faith in an unusual way in connection with Abraham. 
Romans in Romans 4, and this is extremely important and may even appear in bold print in your printed version of this message. Romans 4, in Romans 4, faith being counted as righteousness, which is an allusion to Genesis 15, 6, is not as it has often been interpreted, including by myself, it is not speaking of the imputed righteousness or justification granted to personal individual faith. In fact, it's more like how faith is viewed in Hebrews with regard to God's approval of faith as approved human livingness. This faith, in the case of the presbyteroi or the elders of former times, was a prequel of the faith of Jesus, and in fact, really, the faith of these faith heroes in previous ages or previous generations is in fact an ongoing example of Jesus' faithfulness in history, previous to his incarnation and the days of his flesh, when he himself demonstrated faith and faithfulness through incomprehensible suffering and death as the ultimate human exemplar of faith. Hebrews 2.13, 12, 1-3. Jesus himself exemplified the faith and presented a pattern for the faith that is the substance and assurance of things hoped for. There's an argument about what Hebrews 12.2 means. Was it instead of the joy before him that Jesus endured the cross, or was it because of the joy ahead of him that Jesus endured the cross? Both are true. Both are, therefore, proper interpretations. Jesus himself exemplified the faith that is the substance of things hoped for. So as he endured the cross, he went to the cross and endured the cross with the hope and the joyous hope that was set before him, which is resurrection, exaltation, and more than that, his solidarity with all humanity, his redemptive solidarity with all of humanity. But he also endured the cross instead of the joy that was set before him, meaning there was great joy before him in heaven before his incarnation, worship of the angels and worship of all creation was his, but, and of course the joy that he had with the Father and the Spirit that's unspeakable, he traded that in, as it were, for the suffering of the endurance of the cross. So that's also true. Anti, instead of the joy that was before him, he endured the cross. That's an unspeakable choice that he endured and an unspeakable agony that he endured on the cross because it's not only to be contrasted with well-being in, in life, but with glory in heaven. And, so, and it became the opposite of that glory. And so, Jesus himself exemplified the faith that is the substance and assurance of things hoped for. And so, Hebrews 11, 1 correlates with 12, 2 for the joy that was set before him which can be compared with the hope that was set before him and us in Hebrews 6.18. So with regard to anti, A-N-T-I, the preposition 
instead, translated instead in Hebrews 12.2, both meanings can be taken. Because of Hebrews 11.1, faith being the substance of things hoped for, with Hebrews 12.2 and Hebrews 11.26, the reward that was set before Moses compared with Hebrews 12.2. And he endured the reproach of Christ because he had respect to the reward. So let's look at the anatomy of hope in Romans and see that it begins with Abraham's hope and with the patriarch's faith and patience. It will prove to be instructive, I think, and may also inspire hope. On top of this, Hebrews 6, 12 to 15 will be seen much more clearly by our having examined hope in Romans. So here's Romans 4.16. Again, this is from my somewhat expanded translation. I call it a Targumic translation because it expands with explanation. Romans 4.16 to 25, I'll read first. This is the reason that the promise is fulfilled as a result of Messiah Jesus' faithfulness. So that it may be according to grace in order to guarantee the benefit to all of Abraham's descendants, not only to those of the law, but also to those of the faithfulness of Abraham, who is the father of us all, the patriarch of us all, meaning both circumcised Jews and uncircumcised Gentiles have Abraham as their patriarch, and so both are, in that sense, Israel or the Israel of God. Just as it is written, says verse 17 of Romans 4, I have made you the father of many nations, Genesis 17:5. He is our father, Abraham is, in the sense of patriarch, in the sight of the God whom he trusted, the God who makes the dead to live and who calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is where we got the idea of the counterintuitive hope of Abraham because he knew the God who makes the dead to live and who calls into existence the things that do not exist. For beyond the hope, here's the anatomy of hope, verse 18, for beyond the hope, we could say is enclosed by quotes, that is presented to our eyes empirically, that's one kind of hope, but beyond that hope, Abraham still hoped and believed that he would become the father of many nations. Again, that's Genesis 17:5. According to this word that was spoken to him, quote, so shall your seed be, Genesis 15:5. Abraham carefully considered, speaking of anatomy, his own body, already dead, it says, being about 100 years old. Now, already dead means he's not going to sexually perform with Sarah. Not by sight, not by empirical evidence, not by physical evidence, not by any stretch of the human imagination. And so, he carefully considered his own body already dead being about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, she was about 90, without weakening in faithful trust. 
he did not he not only did not doubt the promise of God being strengthened in faith but being strengthened in faith he gave glory to God being fully convinced that what God had promised he was also able to do for this reason Abraham's faithful trust was assessed by God to be rectitude, that which we call God-approved livingness. This is not, and I want to make this clear, this is not when Abraham was justified and therefore saved because he believed God and was rewarded for his personal faith. No, his faith and his faithful trust in God was approved by God as God-approved livingness. And this is the sense in which faith is dealt with in Hebrews because only by faith can we please God. It's a matter of the elders were approved, piste it says, by faith. Eighteen times we have it in Hebrews 11. So that this should not be brought into an argument that there is justification or salvation through one's personal individual faith. It is rather presenting to us a more palatable and more wonderful exposition of faith as what God considers to be God-approved livingness. We'll be dealing with this more down the road, I hope. And this blurred outline will become filled in a little more or fleshed out. A skeletal outline fleshed out in our anatomy of hope. Verse 22, for this reason his faithful trust was assessed by God to be rectitude or God-approved livingness. But, verse 23, and here's where Atlot comes in on the level of our own time, but the words, it was accounted to him, were not written for him alone, but also for us who believe in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. For us also faithfulness or faithful trust will be accounted by God to be approved livingness. Or we would just say rectitude or the right way to live. The right way to live is by trust, by faith. He, verse 25, meaning Jesus, the seed of Abraham, was handed over for our offenses, that is, to take them away. Hebrews 9.26, remember? He appeared once at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And he was resurrected for our justification. Who is our? Oh, you are there. Romans 5.18 says everybody. But the story of Abraham in Romans ends here. And we're going to pick it up again in Hebrews. And that's my point of why we're including this Romans anatomy of hope. The story of Abraham in Romans ends here. But the anatomy of hope continues seamlessly in Romans 5.1. You see, he drops Abraham off and he keeps the anatomy of hope going. So if we see this continuity of the anatomy of hope, it really helps us understand Romans 5. Look, let's go to Romans 5, and I'm going to hit another passage here. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, being justified on account of the aforementioned faithfulness, that means that of Messiah Jesus, 
who was handed over and willingly handed himself over to take away our sins and was raised up for our justification. It does not say justified by your personal faith. It says we were justified by the aforementioned faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who was willingly handed over to bear our sins and put them away, and then raised from the dead for what? For our justification. Jesus was raised from the dead for our justification. It isn't justification by your personal individual belief or faith. It's justification by Jesus Christ's individual and, let's say, collective. He makes it collective for all mankind. Faithfulness. Jesus' faithfulness, which resulted in resurrection, which resulted in our justification. It's all grace here. We're not talking about individual faith. If you believe in reformed faith and call yourself someone who believes that you're justified by your faith alone, you need to be reformed. You need to go to reform school called a school in which Bible doctrine teaches you that your justification is the result of one Jesus Christ act of faithfulness resulting in death, resulting in resurrection by which you were justified and everyone else was justified. So, therefore, being justified on account account of the aforementioned faithfulness, the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah, let us enjoy peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access into this justifying, sanctifying, and elevating grace in which we stand. And let us boastfully exult in the confident hope of the glory of God. The confident hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? It means the glory of God doesn't just mean that we're going to be glorified. We can't wait for me. I can't wait for me to be glorified. This confident hope of the glory of God means God's glory being manifest throughout the entire universe of proportionate being over the course of all time, a diachronic glorification, a universal glorification. And yes, your individual glorification is included, but that's not what it's all about. Confident hope of the glory of God. Do you have it? Have you got it? Then get it. Beyond that, let us also exultingly boast in our tribulations rather than, listen to this, falsely considering them to be signs of God's disapproval of us. You're going through hell? You're going through hard times? Going through difficulties? Going through delays? Going through pain, going through illness, going through persecution, going through doxing, trolling, social shaming, ostracism, maligning, slander, going through stuff, going through the breakdown of things that you want to work and need to work in your life. Well, those aren't signs of God's disapproval of you. That's the wrong way to think. Because it says here, Let us exultingly boast in our tribulations rather than falsely considering them to be signs of God's disapproval of us, knowing on the contrary that by God's loving design, tribulation produces perseverance. Got to have it to have perseverance. Otherwise, 
when you lose a loved one, you'll grieve, but your grief will be contaminated by self-pity and unbearable. Grief is one thing and must be endured by those who lose loved ones temporarily. But self-pity cannot mix with grief or it's a self-indulgent grief. It doesn't do anyone any good around you and it only points to yourself. Look at what I'm enduring because they died. Look at what I'm missing because they died. I'm missing them. I don't have them anymore. Poor me, pity me. That's not grief. That's stupidity and it's self-pity and there's no room for it in the plan of God because it kicks out faithful trust which is the only way that God approves of our living. Now, you say, do you need time to gather yourself? No, I'm very peaceful. It says... Beyond that, let us exultingly boast in our tribulations rather than falsely considering them to be signs of God's disapproval of us, knowing on the contrary that tribulation produces perseverance. The proven character, perseverance is in turn called in verse 4, the proven character which in turn intensifies and incentivizes hope as an assured expectancy of God's glory. And for us who understand, that means God's universal glory. There's an anatomy of hope in Romans. I hope it's being transplanted and transposed into your soul and into mine. Verse 5, and this hope is not just a deferred consolation. It's not make, it doesn't make us ashamed. It's not just a deferred consolation for an event that may or may not happen. It doesn't embarrass you for having it, in other words, as Paul said. It doesn't, embarrassing you, it doesn't embarrass you for having this hope, even though it's counterintuitive and unrealistic and unreasonable to so many people and not yet realized. It doesn't embarrass you because in the meantime, the love of God, God's own self-gift, God's gift of his own love, is being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us by the Father and the Son. In other words, hope shouldn't embarrass you because at the same time you're getting a foretaste of the age of future world that's coming in this world. Now, the anatomy of hope continues in Romans 8, 14. There's a madness to my method. You say, you say, no, you're supposed to say there's a method to your madness. No, I said there's a madness to my method. I happen to like to be mad. So indulge me in my madness, says 2 Corinthians 5, 12, and 13. 8.14, as I continue the madness of this method. As many as are governed and guided by the Spirit of God, those are, that means those are in praxis, in practicality, the sons of God. And that's a divinely given title for eschatological redeemed Israel, incidentally, according to Hosea 1.10, which is the Septuagint, Hosea 2.1. For you see, Romans 8.15 goes on to say, you did not receive a spirit of slavery again, like enslaved Israel in Egypt, leading to slavish fear like the enslaved Israelites who feared the wrath of Pharaoh. These, again, this is expanded. 
On the contrary, you received the spirit of adoption. Adoption being fully realized in the parousia and in bodily resurrection. It is the privilege accorded to the people of Israel. And then he says, by whom? By that spirit of adoption. By whom we cry out to God our Father, Abba. Daddy. The spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And since we are children, we are also heirs, inheritors, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, who is the heir of all things in Hebrews 1-2. Seeing that we are suffering in order also to be glorified with him. For I'm banking on the fact, says Paul, that the sufferings of the present time of crisis, which is the clashing juncture of the ages, as we've seen before, the agona, the sufferings of the agona are not worthy of comparison with the glory that is imminently to be revealed in us. For the creation, the creation, that means the creation in its totality over the course of all time, eagerly awaits the apocalypse of the sons of God. That means the glorious revelation of eschatological glorified Israel. Verse 20, for the creation in its totality was subjected to futility. That means it was made void without form in itself, according to Genesis 1-2, only to be given purpose and shape by its creator in dwelling or residing in it. So, the creation in its totality was subjected to futility, not willingly. The creation didn't say, hey God, could you subject us to futility? No, not willingly, but through the one who subjected it with the expectation. Here is the most extraordinary thing. It's talking about God's hope. Do you know that God has a hope? The world's hope is a maybe prospect. I hope that maybe this will happen. I hope that maybe she'll turn around and smile at me. I hope this. I hope that. No. God, our hope is a confident expectation. But you know what God's hope is? A determined resolution that is unstoppable. And so God subjected the whole creation with his own determined resolution. The hope of God is his own determined resolution, verse 21, that the whole of creation will be liberated from its slavery to corruption into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Do you know what he's saying here? All of creation is to be liberated and to enjoy a glorious freedom. And so when Hebrews 9.28 says that Jesus is coming to bring salvation to those who wait for him, he's bringing salvation to all of creation that whether it knows it or not is waiting for him. And that includes what we call the dead. That includes the living. That includes humanity from all generations regardless of belief or unbelief. God, the resurrected Christ, is going to say to everybody what he said to Thomas. Don't be an unbeliever. Be a believer. And everyone will be a believer when they see him. Even Thomas was. 
Verse 22, for we know that all of creation in all of its times laments and suffers the agony of birth pangs even until now. But not only is that so, on top of that, we, that's those who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. We call us the proleptic new creation, the church, the present Israel of God, Christ corporate. Call it whatever you want. He's talking about those who have had faith engendered in them and are in an organic union with Jesus Christ. Not only that, not only is that so, on top of that, we sigh deeply in ourselves as we eagerly await. Most of life is waiting. As we eagerly await the enjoyment of the full privileges of our sonship, sonship, that is the redemption of our bodies, their inevitable ransom from corruption. You're not going to experience the full benefits of your sonship and mine. We're not going to experience the full benefits until our bodies are ransomed from corruption in bodily resurrection. And that's coming. Most of life is waiting for it. Verse 24, hope still pops in Romans 8, 24. It is in this hope, that's God's own determined and unstoppable resolution to liberate the whole creation by comprising it of Christ. That's the hope. It is in this hope that we were saved. In this hope that we were saved. Peter said it this way, you were born again to a living hope. However, Hope that is already realized or seen is not by definition hope. Who hopes for what one sees or has fully realized? We haven't yet seen Jesus in glory, though we see him with the eyes of our heart. When we see him as he is in glory, we'll be made like him. Then there'll be no more need to hope. Verse 25, but if we are hoping for what we do not presently see, that is with the eyes in our head, we keep on eagerly waiting for it. Most of life is waiting. Now this passage goes on to show the benefit that we have in the agona, or the, what I like to call the clash of the ages. The spirit making intercession for the saints is one benefit. The working together of all things for the ultimate good for the lovers of God is another benefit. Romans 8, 26, 27, 28. That is, to those who are called according to his purpose. It is, we have also the benefit of the assurance of our predestination to be conformed in the image of God's Son, which is the guarantee of glorification of all who God justified, and God justified all. At the heart of the heart of Romans is an allusion to the very thing that Hebrews 6:13 to 15 and Hebrews 11:17 to 19 deals with Abraham offering Isaac in his ultimate test which some might call the evidence test of Abraham Abraham offering Isaac whom God spared and that's compared and contrasted with the God who is for us and did not spare his own unique son, Jesus Christ, monogenes, but freely handed him over in behalf of us all. In behalf of us all. Romans 8, 31 to 32. So that with him, God would give us all things. 
This, in turn, develops into the assurance of believers that they are beyond being effectively or successfully accused and beyond all condemnation because God who justifies and Christ who died and even beyond that, who was raised up, that is, raised up for our justification, which came about through his faithful death for us, beyond Jesus dying even beyond that, he was raised up, and listen, listen to this verse, because this is the link to Hebrews, from Romans to Hebrews in earnest, who is now and forever at the right hand of God, advocating on our behalf. Romans 8.34. This, in turn, is followed by the absolute assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus in Romans 8.35-39. to Now, here is the anatomy of hope in Romans, and it progresses to the declaration of Jesus as exalted advocate and intercessor on our behalf. So here, Romans 8.34 especially, is Paul's clearest suggestion of Jesus' forever priesthood. Even though Paul does not call him a priest, he certainly does not call him a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's up to the Hebrews PT. That's why Paul likes Hebrews so much and recommends it. So, it is at this very point where we can see how Paul must have deeply appreciated the Hebrews treatise on Christ's eternal archpriesthood after the order of Melchizedek as was thoroughly expounded by the author of Hebrews. Now, for the sake of our motif of hope in Romans, and I want to kind of round off or round out our anatomy of hope in Romans for those who in the future might want to do a book called The Anatomy of Hope in Romans or something or a series of messages. Romans 15.4, for everything that was written before, meaning in the scriptures, was written for our instruction to the end that through the endurance and through the encouragement imparted by the scriptures, we would have hope. What have I been saying here? The scriptures are a narrative of hope, a chronicle of hope. That means that we would all share the one hope of the universal glory of God. Ephesians 4 talks about one faith, one hope, one baptism, that being by the Holy Spirit. One Holy Spirit, one Father, one Lord. One body. The body of Christ, which ultimately will be the body of all of humanity. The scriptures are an anatomy of hope. It goes on. The anatomy of hope goes on. Romans fifteen eight. For I say that Christ became a minister of the circumcision. That's the Jew according to Romans 1.16. On behalf of the faithfulness of God to make good on the promises made to the patriarchs and so that Gentiles, also known as the nations, as also found in Romans 1.16, will glorify God for his mercy. Glorify God for his mercy. But doesn't it talk about mercy being shown to all? Yes, all the nations will glorify God for his mercy because God's mercy will have been shown to all and has been in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, his resurrection from the dead, his ongoing mediatorship for us as a great archpriest after the order of Melchizedek, which will be climaxed and culminated in his appearance his glorious appearance bringing salvation 
to the awaiting creation. So, verse 19, or verse 9 of Romans 15, so that the Gentiles will glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I, Jesus Christ is speaking, I will praise you, God my Father, among the Gentiles, and sing psalms. And again, the scripture says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people, Israel. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, nations, and let all the people groups praise him. Verses are inserted here in our written copy. Verse 12, and still again, Isaiah, this time, says, the root of Jesse, that's the heir of David's throne, will come, the one who rises from the dead to rule the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. Isaiah 11.10, Septuagint translation. Verse 13, this is the last verse of the prime narrative in Romans. In other words, there's a whole narrative in Romans that ends with 13. Then it goes into some closing exhortations and salutations and Paul's report of his travels and what he intends to do. Romans 15.13, therefore, is really the effectively the last verse of the Roman epistle in terms of its content of doctrine and exhortation. And it says this, Now may God, the source of hope, completely fill you up with joy and peace in believing so that you may overflow with a communicable hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, I'll say at the end of this message what I said at the beginning, or approaching the end of the message, what I said at the beginning. We came to Hebrews through Romans. Now let's go from Romans back to Hebrews. With Hebrews 6, 11, and 12, we come all the way back to Hebrews 5, for example. For in Hebrews 5, it says, we have a lot to say about this, meaning this oath-fortified oracle of Psalm 110.4, cited in Hebrews 5, 6, and 10. We've got a lot of things to say about this. But it's hard to articulate, says the PT, in a rather forthright manner. He says, it's hard to articulate in such a way as to make it intelligible to you since you've become nothroy, nothroy, in listening. Nothroy means lazy, lethargic, apathetic, indifferent, pathetic, we could even say. But now listen. It seems like I'm preaching to a vast congregation in this church today, but the only people in the building that I know of are the faithful Kathy McClory, who's been holding down the fort for all these months during our dispersion. And in the control booth, abbreviate that, though. Abbreviate control with troll. In the troll booth is Will Milheim, a.k.a. the will of God, and... Emery Persinger, a.k.a. starting today, E.M., the Elastic Marine. Those are the, and, and then there's a mouse. And so if we believe what the Bible says, there's also a host of angels that might be here listening to the word of God, according to 1 Corinthians 11. But I'm preaching as if I see these seats filled with beaming faces and imagine an actual audience of people listening through 
other means through the internet and through the website and through MP3s and CDs or whatever and DVDs. That's why I'm so excited. So, Hebrews 5.11. We have a lot to say about this, meaning this oath. Please notice that phrase and keep it in your mind. Oath fortified oracle. Oath fortified oracle. We have much to say about this oath fortified oracle. And that's in Psalm 110.4. The oath fortified oracle is the Lord will swears and he will not repent. You, pointing emphatically to his son Jesus Christ, you, a priest forever, like Melchizedek. Will be. There's a lot to say about this. And in the central heart of Hebrews, that's the point. We have a lot to say about this oath fortified oracle, you a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But it's hard to teach it. It's hard to articulate it in such a way as to make it intelligible to you since you became lazy in listening. And I have to say this, I think a lot of people are lazy in listening today. They take it for granted that another message, another increment might come and we can just listen to another increment. And I can say I listened to 154, 155, 156, 157. And if you say to them, what was in it? How were you inspired by it? What insights did you derive from it? They don't know because they're lazy in listening. They are much more interested in what's going on in the world, they think. They think the news is what's going on in the world. What's going on in the world is what God is invisibly, providentially bringing about in the world, not what you see on the cameras of CNN and Fox and MSNBC and CNBC and a host of other networks. That's not what's going on in the world. And so people get all wrapped up in the news. They get all wrapped up in the plagues and the famines that are, have come and will come. They get all upset about the floods. And we should be upset. We should pray in the sense of being upset enough to pray and intercede for God's mercy on people who are suffering these things. But they're not really that interested in the word of God. You can't really strike up a conversation in which the word of God becomes the subject to talk about because people are lazy in listening. They're lethargic about it. They put it on the side. They put it on as a hobby that they have. There are dilettantes about doctrine, about interest in the Word of God, but it's over here. It's one of the books in their library of thinking. It's one of the little increments in their gigantic consciousness about things in the world and things about themselves and things about their family and things about sports and things about this and that. So if this is a problem for you, own it, as people like to say today. It's a problem for me sometimes and I own it and I have to own it many, many times before God. But I'm willing to. So Hebrews 6, Hebrews 5, 11 has an inclusio all the way in 612 where we find ourselves today and right now. And we desire for each one of you to demonstrate the same diligence with regard to the plenary manifestation of hope until the end. In other words, keep pushing till hope becomes an absolute confidence and keep doing it until the day you die. So that, verse 12, 
you won't become lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience, doesn't say perseverance here, this time it's macrothumia, patience, inherit the promises. Now, because of the verb, now I want to just give you a little bit of a twist here so, so that we can interpret this properly. We're now in the theological functional specialty of interpretation. Because of genesthe, G-E-N-E-A-T-E-S-T-H-E. Genesthe is a word that the lemma form of it is genomai. It means to become. Now, here's where the, I've always been confused reading Hebrews about this, and I imagine some other people are too. Because of genesthe, the aorist middle subjunctive form of the verb meaning to become. Genomai means to become more than it means just to be. And because of this, I think we should translate Hebrews 6.12 according to sense in this way to give it a clearer sense of what the PT is intending. Now listen to this carefully. So that in the final analysis, verse 12, in the final analysis, you know one of the most overused terms that people use today because they really can't think of what they want to say is at the end of the day, at the end of the day, this will be true. At the end of the day, this. At the end of the day, I've heard people talk on a news broadcast. They're interviewed, and they've said, at the end of the day, three times in two minutes. And we, we're tempted to use the same word over and over again. We need to expand our vocabulary. I like the old phrase, in the final analysis. And so that's what he's saying here. But if you want to use the hackneyed and way overused term, we could say this. So that at the end of the day, but I like this better, so that in the final analysis, we could even say so that at the judgment seat of Christ, the evaluation seat of Christ, you will not have become lazy or nothroy again, but imitators. In other words, when it's all said and done, and you and I are st finally standing before the assessment of Christ and the judgment seat of Christ, it will be said of us, you were imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises, not you were lazy and did not experience the promises. You did not, in other words, imitate those who were characterized as receiving the promises, taking them seriously, believing them, and being approved for their faith. So let's translate it this way, and you see how this gives the sense. So that in the final analysis, you will not have become lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience come into possession of the promises. Ton dia pistios kai macrothumias Cleronomunton tes epagelias, so that you will be imitators of those who through faith and patience come into the possession of the promises. Now, I'm going to close with this and we'll take up this a little bit later because we dealt with quite a vast amount of Romans to get us here. There seems to be an inconsistency between Hebrews 11, 511, listen carefully, there seems to be an inconsistency between Hebrews 5.11 and 6.12. Because in 5.11, the pastor tells his readers that they have become lazy or sluggish and dull with respect to hearing, listening to the word, prioritizing the truth. 
In 6.12, he says that he desires that they do not become lazy or sluggish. How can he say to those who have become lazy that he wants them not to become lazy? Well, we have to consider the goal of the PT and of the Holy Spirit, for that matter, in the Hebrews homily. He wants to shake them and us out of our spiritual lethargy so that in the final analysis, we, they, we, they in the first century, we in the 21st, will not have become lazy persons who are known for being lazy or indifferent and apathetic to things of eternal importance and value. Oh, you might have been extraordinarily zealous about matters like your golf score or the Steelers record or how much you produced for the boss or produced for yourself or earned. You may be very zealous about that. You might even be a very hard worker. But if you're lazy in terms of hearing and listening and applying the word of God, you will be assessed as such in the final analysis. You don't want that. I don't want it. And I fear having that analysis. I'm not saying, oh, I'm going to make it. I'm going to be rewarded. I don't buy that. I don't buy people that are that confident. And I don't buy the fact that people may be confident of that for me. They can have that confidence, and I appreciate it because it's a function of their love. But I don't have that confidence. I fear that after being preaching to many others all my life, I myself would be disapproved. So I press on. It's a serious matter, this Christian living stuff. Serious matter. So, he wants to shake us up so that in the final analysis, even though we have been in the past, we will not have become lazy persons who are known for being lazy or indifferent and apathetic to things of eternal importance and value. The way to not become finally characterized by laziness is to become imitators of those who through faith and patience became heirs of God's promises. The author begins by showing how the patriarch Abraham presents a pattern of faith and patience that is worthy of imitation. The readers had become lethargic. There is a way to get out of that lethargy And it's by imitation of certain historical persons who through faith and patience came into a possession of the promises of God. Or we could say took seriously the promises of God. A lot of people write in these commentaries, and I'm sick of reading it. They say that the promise that we inherit at the end of a life of faith is salvation. God doesn't promise salvation to those who earn it through a long life of faith and patience. He promises reward beyond salvation to those who persist in an approved faith and patience. Hebrews 6.12 then, we have this so far. So that from now on, we could also say, so that from now on, so that in the final analysis you won't be lazy, so that from now on you will not be lazy. Nothroi. And that comes from another word, nothoi, which means illegitimate heirs. You don't want to be that. Comes up in Hebrews 12.8. So that from now on 
You will not be lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and perseverance come into possession of the promises. So I've given the sense here of so that from now on you won't be lazy and the sense of so that in the final analysis you will not be considered to be lazy because the verse forms an inclusio with Hebrews 5.11 where the teaching pastor tells them that they have become lazy. He has a right to. He loves them. The implication is that the originally implied, the original implied recipients of this homily did not at the time have what it takes to persevere to the point that their faith would be approved and finally commended like Abraham's, for example, was. And like the so-called faith heroes of Hebrews 11 who shined in history only to be outshined by Jesus himself. Now, I want to emphasize this again because this is important to the Hebrews' interpretation. Finally, say this. Some commentators think that inheriting the promises or coming into possession of what was promised means coming to possess salvation. I'm inclined rather to think that faith and perseverance or patience comes into possession of reward beyond salvation. It's true that through faith and perseverance, we can inherit or begin to experience the great salvation that will be fully realized and experienced in uninterrupted fullness in future world. That's true. But even more, it means to receive the reward and glory that's promised to those who persevere in faith, hope, and love. There is a reward for those who demonstrate the same diligence toward the plenary assurance of hope until the end. This is affirmed finally and with clarity in Hebrews 10.35 where the PT urges his readers, don't discard your confidence, don't throw it away, which has a great reward. Not discarding confidence means keeping hope alive. When Christian faith shows exhaustion both in breathing, in hearing and receiving, breathing in, and in breathing out, believing confidence in the future, the author of Hebrews calls his readers nothroi when they fail to have that vitality, but mimitai, imitators, in those who maintain that hope. I've seen Christians give up hope. I've seen them give up their Christian profession because of pressure. I've seen people that are in the music business claim no longer to be Christians because of the unpopularity that that has caused or because they have certain things in their lives that Christians have judged and condemned them for. There's many reasons to give up hope. There's one reason not to, and it's to be rewarded by the living God at the judgment seat of Christ. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray that you'll rivet these truths home in our hearts and that those who take this doctrine will take it as men and women, take it with honor, take it with courage, and take it with resolution not to be lazy, but to be imitators of men like Abraham, women like Sarah and Deborah and people like Jephthah and Samson who had many failings in life but who operated 
in faith. So we thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And I thank you, Father, for those who have remained faithful in our assembly in this Tetelestai phalanx, those who have been faithful to be generous, those who have been faithful to pray, those who have been faithful to love one another and to be aware of others' needs and pray for those who are hurting, those who are sick, those who are ill, those who have suffered loss, those who are challenged in many ways. And we thank you in Jesus' name for this opportunity. Amen.